0: Thank you so much, Smiths. You take your uh, Bible out and turn with me to the book of James in chapter 4. James chapter 4. As a parent of young children, there's been more than one time when the kids are not quite old enough to talk yet, and and they're distraught, and they cannot... They cannot uh, uh, console themselves. They're just, they're just crying, and they're probably exhausted, and they're tired. You know, they're just, they're just crying and weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth. You know what's going on? <laughs> and you're sitting there saying, what do you want? Just tell me what you want, and I will do it for you. What do you need? I will get it for you. What do you want? Anything to stop crying? Would you please just stop? Please tell me what you need. And they don't know what they want. They just know they don't have it right? They're just crying, and they're upset. Um, what we want, uh, desire, is, is a strange thing. Uh, it's a strange thing that, that forms so much of our human uh, condition. It, it, really, it really is so interesting when you think about how much of our desire pushes us towards our actions. What we want pushes us towards doing, uh, doing things. Many uh, scholars have identified what they call fundamental human desires. There are desires for love, glory, honor, family, and friends, and posterity. These things push us towards uh, towards doing good things. We, we pursue good things because of these desires. In fact, many of our, our stories that we love uh, form around desire and, and unmet desire and desire that needs to To be accomplished, some you know desire is is foundational to us, but also has a dark side to it as well. Because you know we're surrounded uh, by ads. It's like you you can't do anything without being fed an ad from some company. Uh, You can't watch anything. You can't drive down the road. You can't you know do anything uh, these days without having ads constantly in your face. And we're surrounded by by propaganda. The the world is trying to teach us things through these through this uh, through these words and through these pictures. The world is trying to inform and craft our desires into uh, desiring what they're selling. And we find that over and over again. Sometimes we think we can decide what we want. We think uh, sometimes that we can't help what we like. There is a whole group of our culture today that tells you, well, you can't, you can't help what you want, and your desire, in fact, is your destiny. What you want will make, make you who you are and you have no control over that. You just are destined to be what you want. Sometimes we see our circumstances around us, and we think, well, if I could just only change them, then everything will improve. If I could get that one thing, whether it's a new car, whether it's a new toy, whether it's a new outfit, whether it's that new kitchen appliance, whatever it is, I need that thing that will transform my life and make everything better. It'll make everything wonderful. Well, the Bible tells us a lot about desire, human desire, and the, and the book of James is a very practical book, isn't it? I mean, it's, in fact, our, our title for this series has been Practical Christian Living. And, and the book of James deals with uh, this, this idea of desire. In fact, so much of the book of, of James is like the book of Proverbs. Let's look back at the immediate context before we get into James 4. Look at chapter 3 and verse 17. He says, "...the wisdom that is from above is first pure." then peaceable, gentle, willing to yield, full of mercy and good fruits, without partiality, without hypocrisy. Now, the fruit of righteousness is sown, notice this, sown in peace by those who make peace. As you finish this passage about peace, the question naturally arises about the conflicts we often so see, we so often see in our personal relationships, and conflicts and peace and desire, and how those are all connected. And this passage here takes us on a on a on a on an exploration of our own desires and what that where that leads us. And let's ask the Lord for wisdom as we dive into His Word today. Father, we ask for grace and mercy, and we ask the Lord, you'd help us to be humble, approachable, transparent and vulnerable before you as we talk about things that can touch very very close to our home and i pray god that you'd help us to be willing to change because of the truth that your word through the grace that your spirit provides we thank you lord your bible does not condemn us it gives us hope and i pray today you would bless us as we look into your word in jesus name amen amen Uh, first thing we'll see in the first three verses is that the simple truth that desires create conflict. Now, this is not to be clear. Not every desire creates conflict. I'm speaking here specifically in the passage. He's talking about these selfish desires that James describes for us, these selfish uh, unmet desires. Notice what he says here in verse 1. He says, "'Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members?' you lust and you do not have, you murder and covet and cannot obtain, you fight and war. What are the source of your fights? He says here, look, where do these fights come from? If, if, if the gospel of peace, if this is a… it says here, the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace, would you look around you and notice that there's conflict? And where does conflict come from? Uh, he's using military language here, wars and fights, and sometimes the battles you face in your family or the battles you face at work and the interpersonal fights you have feel like they are all-out warfare. And he says when you have these ideas of fights, they have a source. And where do people often blame the source of their fights? Well, it's everybody else's fault, obviously. I mean, it's society's fault, obviously right? It is, it is out there. The problem is out there. It's other people. It's just how I was made. I've had that before. Well, you have to understand, Pastor, I'm a confronter, <laughs> right? People say this to me. You have to understand, Pastor, that's just how I'm made. That's just how I'm wired. We say this is almost like we're a machine that, that has been built a certain way and that cannot have any free will of its own, cannot make any choices. Oh, no, we're just destined to do certain things, God, God puts the accountability right at our feet, and He says these conflicts are coming from your lust at war with each other. He says your 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 issues of conflict are not primarily because of outside things. Now, outside things can can spark uh, the initial you know can cause issues. You will get knocked around in this life, but how you respond to that is 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 vitally important. And when we respond, he says here, the fights that come from among you, he says, aren't they obviously? He asks this as a rhetorical question. They come for your desires for, for pleasure. Uh, when, when, notice where they come from. They come from your heart, from the inside. And the Bible makes this very clear. Proverbs 4 says you must keep or guard or protect your heart with all diligence for out of it springs the issues of life. You better watch what you love and watch what you think about and watch the inside of yourself because what you allow to take residence in your heart will work itself out in your life. We must be careful to guard your heart. He goes further in Galatians 5. The Bible tells us, Paul speaking here says, he says, I say then walk in the spirit. Walk being spirit led and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. The desires of the flesh are contrary to the Spirit. He says the lusts of the flesh, lusts against the Spirit, the Spirit against the flesh. These are contrary to each other. You cannot do the things that you wish. There is a source for these these conflicts, and the source is your desires for pleasure. If you look back at James chapter 4, look at this word uh, desire for pleasure. You might have a different translation for that, but this idea is, is the word where we get our word hedonism from. This is accumulating pleasure for ourselves and seeking pleasures as primary. That I have to make myself happy first. And desires create conflict because what you want comes into conflict with what someone else wants. Or what you want comes into conflict with what someone else can provide. These are the conflicts that come, and the results of this is that you don't have what you want. He says in verse 2, you lust and you do not have. Notice, the thing, uh, notice what he says in James chapter um, 1. I'm going to put it up on the screen here. He says that, that lusts have the effect of carrying, away, carrying us away and enticing us. He says each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires or own lusts and enticed. And when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Excuse me, death. Look at verse 2. He says, You lust and you do not have. The result is that you end up taking matters into your own hands. You lust, you don't have, so you murder and covet and cannot obtain. Now, when he says murder here, he's not necessarily just talking about the act of intentionally killing someone. The Bible describes a murderous attitude. And a murderous attitude is, is, is someone who hates his brother. And 1 John 3 says, Whoever hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. There's, a, there's an attitude of murder, which is the opposite of love. It's hatred, so much hatred. You want to destroy someone because they're not giving you what you want. And there are people in, in, in our lives, it may even be you, that you look at your life and you say, I, I get so mad and so angry when my desires aren't met, that I'm willing to just destroy someone because they don't give me what I want. Now, now this may feel very condemning and very, very depressing when you think about it at first, except when you realize this is actually extremely liberating truth. Because what he says here is the source of our fighting is our own heart. It comes deep within us And we can be confident that we can live lives that are full of peace if our hearts are fully submissive to God. And you can live a life that is peaceful even when the world around you has gone nuts. Society can be crazy. Guess what? You can still live a life of peace. Your boss can be unreasonable. You can still live a life of peace. Your family can be off the wall, but guess what? You can live a life of peace because it's not about the outside circumstances. It's about what is your response to those circumstances and specifically what's going on in your heart. What do you want? Because your desires are causing conflict, and when you find that your life, if you look at your life and you say, my life is, is, is riddled with conflict, like everywhere I go, everybody I meet, boy, they just have problems with me. Everyone I meet has a conflict with me. I, I start to think about this from a biblical perspective. What is, going, what is going on inside your heart that causes these conflicts to show up? He says that the source of your fights, we have nowhere to look but inside. Your desires for pleasure are at war in your members, like in war in your body. It's like your body's at war, and you lust, you murder and covet, you cannot attain, you fight in war. And then he says that there's actually a source for our frustrations. He, 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 he continues in verse 2 by saying, you do not have because you do not ask. And you ask and you receive because you, you do not receive because you ask amiss, that you may spend it on your your pleasures, he says. You don't have what you want. Why? Now, generally, people want what they do not have, right? If you it, you look at things you don't have and you want it, that's the whole premise behind advertising: is that you see something you're like that's cool, that's nice. It's nicer than what I have, and I like it, and I want it. So I will do what I need to do to get it. That's like the premise behind that. And, and what frustrations are there because you don't have what you want? He says, you don't have what you want, notice here, because you don't ask. Have you ever thought to ask God instead of pursuing your own way of, of, of achieving this? Have you, ever, have you ever thought to ask? And, and why don't you ask for this? Now, there, I, I was thinking about this as I meditated on this this past week. There are a couple reasons you might not ask. First, you might not remember to pray to God. You just might be so in your own mind and so in, uh, about fulfilling the desires of your flesh, but you don't, it doesn't even occur to you to ask God to give you something. It doesn't, it doesn't occur to your mind. You're not even in the spirit at the moment. Like You're not walking with God. So to pray to ask God is the furthest thing from you. So you want something and you get frustrated, but you never actually stop. To to ask for God to give it to you—that's one potential thing. There's another side to this, and this is interesting. As I was thinking about, I think there might maybe more people do this than than you might think at first. And that is that some people realize that what you're asking is not compatible with God's will. Like you want something, and you know that it is not what God would want for you. So you're not going to ask God for it. Um, And there are all kinds of things that fall in this category. There are things that are outright sinful that you may uh, desire in your heart. There are things that are not necessarily sinful, but not the best. And he says here that you don't have because you do not ask. And so sometimes we, we, we are not asking God. We're trying to do things our own way. We're trying to provide for ourselves. But then there might be those who do ask. They say, I ask. I ask all the time for God, and I'm still not getting it. And he says, you don't receive when you ask. Why is that? He says, you're asking for the wrong reasons. You see what it says here? You ask and you don't receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. The word amiss is just the word evil, with evil intentions in your heart. Well, you ask with the wrong motives. What does it look like to ask with evil intentions? Well, we don't have to wonder. He answers that in the very next phrase. He says, you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. You are asking for something, not for the right reasons, but because you want to indulge. He says, this is, this is the, a, a recipe for disaster. Desire creates all of these conflicts. Look at the frustration that's pent up there. He says, your reasons for asking are wrong. Your prayer request should not be for fulfilling your personal lusts or desires, but for opportunities to love God. You should ask God for opportunities. When we pray according to God's will for us, guess what he promises? He says this is the confidence that we have in him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us, and we know that he hears us whatever we ask. We know that we have the petitions that we have asked of him. A question for you. I wonder how, many, how much of our, our um, ratio of prayer goes towards praying that God would put someone in our life that we can share the gospel with versus how often we ask that God would just help us feel better and not have so much pain. You know, sometimes, sometimes it's God' desire, it's God's will for you to experience pain. And that's hard to say, and that's hard to believe, but it's true. God has a purpose behind the pain often that He brings people through. I've had often people tell me, they say, Pastor, I, I asked God to take away pain for so long, but you know what? God has drawn me closer to Him in these, mo- in these months through this pain than I have ever been to God thanks to this pain. Now, is pain pleasant? Absolutely not. Nobody wants that. No one would say, Lord, bring on the pain. (laughs) No one one is sitting there asking God to do that. But, But when you ask God to, Lord, help me draw close to you, are you aware that that might involve having pain in your life? And when God brings his will into your life, sometimes we mistake it for, oh, I'm just being attacked right now. You realize that God has a way of using all things to work together for good to those who are called according to His purpose. Friends, when we, when we come to God and we actually ask to draw close to Him and we want to draw closer to God, we want to love God and do His will, He opens the doors wide open for that. We ask amiss so often. Desires often, often cause conflict. Secondly, I want you to know desires drive our loyalties. He gives two examples of loyalty here. Verse 4, we'll see first, there's a double-minded treachery. He addresses his congregation, his audience here, very directly. He says, adulterers and adulteresses. Whoa, that's pretty harsh. That's a, called evocative. A that means he's talking to them directly. He says, hey, you adulterers and, hey, you adulteresses. Now, he's not just speaking about sexual immorality, although it's possible that might be somewhat included in this. He's actually talking about their spiritual adultery. We know that because as as we keep reading, we find that out. He says, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Notice the treachery of adultery. In this direct address, he says, you adulterers, you adulteresses have broken your loyalty pledge. When you marry, there's usually vows that you say to one another, something along the lines of, and and forsaking all others, be faithful to you alone, or till death parts us, right? There's this loyalty pledge you take when you marry someone. And he says here, when you are committed to God, when you come to Christ and you flirt with the world, you are actually engaging in spiritual, a kind of spiritual adultery. He says, because friendship with the world is being an enemy of God, it is enmity with God. To make yourself a friend of the world is to make yourself enemy of God. And the question is, why would we try to be friends with a world if the world hates God? John 15, Jesus says, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hates you. He's speaking to his disciples here. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, I chose you out of the world. The world hates you. And we can, we can identify with the disciples here and recognize the fact that you might not be loved by the world, and you have to be okay with that. If you're going to, to be a Christian and follow Jesus and be a disciple of Christ, you ought to recognize the fact that the world itself, the world system, does not think kindly of people who follow Jesus. Jesus. The Scripture tells us actually here that we are to be friends of the world is to be an opponent of God, so if we want to be a friend of the world, we are making ourselves an enemy of God. It's like we are putting our feet in both camps. It's like we are playing both sides of the fence. It's like we are committing adultery, and adultery often is a a sin of of secrecy and a sin of duplicity, double-mindedness, trying to be in two camps at once. But that's not the only thing, the loyalties he talks about here. Our, our desires drive our loyalties. Sometimes is, these loyalties are, are away from God, our desires to be like the world. Are we want, there's the word, the key word of desire there, we want to be a friend of the world. But there's also this, this gracious jealousy. I want you to notice the contrast with how, how we approach God and our desire for Him with how He approaches us. Our, our side often when we approach God is double-mindedness. We have one foot on each side of the fence. But look at verse 5. He says, do you not know the Scripture says, or do you think that the Scripture says in vain, the Spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but He gives more grace? Therefore, He says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Verse 5 tells us that God yearns for you, that God loves you and desires you, and if you're saved, the Holy Spirit lives in you. In fact, the Scripture tells us if you're not saved, or if you don't have the Spirit living in you, you're not saved. That those who belong to Christ have the Spirit of God dwelling in them. Look at Romans 8. You are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if indeed the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he is not his. He doesn't belong to him. And if Christ is in you, The body is dead because of sin, but the spirit is life because of righteousness. And here's the power of the spirit of God in you. Look at verse 11. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you... He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. There's hope of a future resurrection and hope of heaven because of the spirit of God living in, you, in, in us. And I want you to notice this power of God, but there's more to this than just the spirit of God dwelling in us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, don't you know that your body is this temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? Notice this next phrase, and you are not your own. You don't belong to yourself for you were bought at a price. So what are we to do? He says, therefore, what? Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit who belong to God. They are gods. He's it, it, saying here, look, you are so split. You're so divided. You have double-mindedness. You are, you are trying to be a friend of the world and trying to be a friend to God. He says, don't you realize that that God has a single-minded focus on you. He loves you, and He wants you to be all of His. And by splitting your, divi- by splitting your mind, by being double-minded, by, by splitting your loyalties because of your perverted desires. You are are ruining your relationship here, your fellowship with God. You are causing this issue because God says He dwells for us, or He dwells in us, and He yearns jealously. He jealously desires us. And if we look at this as as conflicted, double-minded people, we must be loyal to the One who bought us. He bought us with His blood, we are bought at a price, the blood of Christ. The Holy Spirit wants all of us. He doesn't want part of us. He doesn't want some of us. He wants all of us. He yearns for us. And if we look at verse 6, you might say, wow, that's really hard to do. Like, it's hard to be devoted to God wholeheartedly. It's hard to, to, to put aside the d- desires of this world and go into uh, being completely committed to God. But look at verse 6. It says, but he, God, gives more grace. And that God gives you the grace you need to walk with Him. That it's not up to you to just muster up the courage. It's not bootstrap Christianity. All right, friends, you know, pick, you know, pick yourself up by the bootstraps and, and work harder. That's not the picture here. He says, God gives the grace. So He gets the glory. And God gives the grace, and He gives us this grace as we, as we desire the world's friendship and our heart pulls our, at us. He says, God gives us this grace to those of us who are disloyal, to those of us who are double-minded. Our victory, our overcoming of sin, our ability to enjoy the gracious love of God instead of the pleasures that come from this world for a season is due to this grace. And God's grace is greater than we can ever use. We can't use up God's grace. It's greater than you can imagine. It's more than you could ever need, but it's not available to everybody. Look at the next phrase. He says this, therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives what? Grace to the? Okay. God's grace is available to all, but it's accessible, it's accessible I should say. It is, it is accessed by those who are humble. You need to come to God as a humble person. You cannot come with pride because God resists the proud. God gives more grace to the humble. And we, we, we don't like being humble. We like being uh, in charge. We like being proud. And you don't want God to resist you. You want Him giving you His good gift, His good grace. How, how do we find out, how do we, how do we uh, access this grace? Our, my question to you is, are you loyal to the Lord are you double-minded? He is loyal to you. He loves you. Your desires, they create conflict. They drive your loyalties. Is it possible to change what you want? You come to this section, you say, man, my, my desires are, are causing conflicts. My desires are driving me towards worldliness. Is there any hope for me? Absolutely there's hope because desires must be, the Bible shows us, they must be directed. And and I love how he then works straight into this next passage, because we are called to reorient our desires toward God. And and I want you just to plug in for a few minutes with me here, because he says how we do this is that we direct, we orient, reorient our desires through these next steps. He shows us how it is that we go from loving the world to loving God. From, be, from being d- double-minded to being single-minded. From being proud to being humble. He begins by t- saying that we must submit, you must submit your heart to the proper king. Look at this next verse. He says, therefore, submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Your spiritual disposition must be directed towards God. To, al- to submit yourself is to align yourself under God. So you say, I will submit to God, His priorities, His instructions, His rules. What God says, I do. That's submission. You say, Lord, you say to go, I will go. Submission to God is an inherently humble act because you're choosing. You're saying, okay, Lord, I am not going to do things my way. I'm not going to do things with my desires. I am instead going to cling to your truth and your way you've revealed to me in your word, the Bible. And you know, as I've gotten older, I found it's harder the older you get sometimes to do that because you, develop bad right? you have developed bad habits, right? You develop bad habits of handling problems, and you, I've always done it this way. This is my way of handling things, right? Uh, well, is it God's way? Because if it's not, you need to submit to God. That's your first step is submit to God. You must put yourself under God's authority, Say, Lord, what you say, I'll do. And the second step is that you resist the devil. To resist the devil means more than to say no to sin. It's to reject the whole satanic impulse of pride and rage and selfishness. Self-seeking, self-promotion, self-destruction, and chaos. That's all there in satanic thinking. You you are to resist Satan actively. Satan is a, a false King, he has no right to demand anything of you, and the world around us has completely adopted the satanic way of thinking. If you go back to those uh, things I just, I just mentioned, uh, selfishness, self-seeking, self-promotion, pride, rage, self-destruction, and chaos, all those things are satanic, and the world has completely embraced them. So we have to submit ourselves to God. We resist these things. We say, I'm not going to be seduced by our world. I'm going to resist the devil, and there's a promise attached to this. Did you see the second part of that? If you resist the devil, what's the promise? He will flee from you. Resist the devil and he will run away from you because Satan cannot be where he's not wanted. When he's resisted, he will run away. And, and he says here that with him, uh, with, with, with Satan, th- those, those temptations to sin and those wicked desires that cause so much conflict, he, he, he brings those temptations and how are we to, to treat them? We're to submit to God and resist Satan. And it sounds so simple, but that's exactly, often the simplest answer is the right one, right? God says, resist Satan, submit your heart to the proper king, and and don't flirt with it, resist it. Too many of us are flirting with sin. We're friendly with sin. We're kind to sin. He says, take the opposite tactic. Don't be kind to sin. Reject it, resist it, Push it away. Submit your heart to the proper king. Secondly, I want you to to really focus on this one. You must commit yourself to spiritual growth. As you get oriented towards following God, we have this second verse here, verse 8. He says, uh, draw near to God, and he, God, will draw near to you. Okay, so you want to get Satan as far away from you as you can, and you want to get God as close to you as you can draw near to God, get close to God, be closer to Him. And how does God respond when we draw close to Him? What does He do? He comes to us. He draws near to you. God is is not absent. He's not away. He is close. He is among us even now. God, God is close to us. He is near. He's not a million miles away. He's right there draw close to Him, and He will draw near to you and commit yourself to growing in your spiritual walk. How do you do this? How do you draw close to God? It sounds a little bit mystical. It sounds a little bit like, well, I don't know. You just kind of go out on a hillside somewhere and like draw close to God, and hopefully that's what happens. That's not, that's not what He says to do. He doesn't say, as you go out onto the hillside and close your eyes and, and hum something. He doesn't say that. He, what does He say you're supposed to do? How do you draw close to God? Keep reading. He says, cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Hands represent what we do. And, and dirty hands is symbolic of actions that are not pure, that are not right. He says, he says, ask God to forgive you for your unrighteous behavior and your actions. Cleanse your hands. Wash your hands. The things we do with our hands need to be cleansed. Purify your hearts, representing the things that you think in your mind. And then he gives them that accusation. He says, you you double-minded people. You, are, you have split loyalties. You'll never draw close to God unless you commit yourself to spiritual growth through confession. You'll never draw close to God unless you are regularly confessing sin. You don't grow spiritually by doing more spiritual stuff. You don't grow spiritually by going to church more and, and by accumulating good works. You grow spiritually by dealing with your sin. The Bible tells us that if you will simply be honest before God and confess your sin to the Lord Jesus who can forgive your sin, you will find forgiveness and peace. If you've never come to Christ for forgiveness before, now is the time. Come, bow before your King who loves you and died for your sin. Come, ask Him to forgive you of your sins and to be your Savior. He's already done everything required for you to have a relationship with Him. You do not need to perform. We have been given forgiveness. He will give the grace freely and without price. You must receive it. He gives more grace. Once you're saved, you must commit yourself to spiritual growth, drawing close to God. He wants you to draw close to Him. He is pursuing people to be His worshipers, we saw in John chapter 4. God loves you and He loves to draw close to His children. And He says, Just draw close to me and I'll draw close to you. Well, if you're not close to God, it's not His fault. We must draw near to Him, cleanse our hands. Our, we're sinners. Purify our hearts. We're double-minded. We have this, this divided loyalties. We must commit yourself to spiritual growth. And I mean this for mature believers, not just new believers. Those of us who have been saved for a long time, we tend to think, you know, I, I don't know, I'm kind of getting like, I'm getting good at this Christian thing. Like, I got all the lingo down. I know all the right words to say. I know when to say amen, brother. You know, you know all that stuff. And you know how to, how to talk like a Christian. You know how to walk like a Christian. You know how to, how to even dress like a Christian. Like you, know, you know the thing. And, and, and that's the problem. He says, it's not about adding these these spiritual abilities. He says, confess your sin. And as you do that, and God reveals your sin, what's your response? So many of us, if you get in your spiritual life, if God reveals sin to you, your immediate response is, oh, no, no, no. I can't go on confessing that sin. No, no, no. I'm a mature Christian. He says, no, you need to cleanse your hands, you sinner. Purify your heart, you double-minded. You want to draw close to God, that's how you do it. If you keep going... He says we need to develop a proper view of ourself and of our circumstances. Then he says, he says you need to take this seriously. This is not a joke. He says lament and mourn and weep. Okay, think about yourself. Have the right view of yourself. Show distress. Be miserable. Lament. Grieve and cry. Weep. When you see your sin, that's an appropriate response. After all, you've offended the great king of the universe who loves you and gave his son to die for your sin. And you go out, I go out, and we commit sin against him. Lament, mourn, and weep. It's not a joke. Be be sober about your sin. And I believe as you draw closer to God, you will become more aware of your sin. You will lament, you will mourn, you will weep. This is not a time for joking and silliness. God's greatness humbles us and puts us in in our place. We see who we are. We realize His greatness and our our smallness. The Bible gives us a few precious descriptions of a person's confrontation with the direct presence of God. In every situation, people respond by falling on their face in humility and saying, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips in the midst of a people of unclean lips. I have seen the King of glory. And, And people are not joking with Jesus. People are bowing before the King. We need to take take our spiritual life. Many churches have become a place of silliness and frivolity. Friends, we must be serious about this. Now not to be dark and heavy all the time. We have the joy of the Lord, which is our strength, but friends, we've got to be real. That we're talking about real sin against a real God. And when we do this, our pride fades into the background. We realize we're not worthy of the gift of God. You're not worthy of salvation. Like, who, who do you think you are? Who who I think I am? I, I, since when do we think the, that we, we're worthy of this? He says, no, lament, mourn, and weep. Let your, uh, think about your circumstances differently. Let your laughter return to mourning, your joy to gloom. He says, you think you think life is a joke? You think it doesn't matter what you do with your life? You think God doesn't care? In Ecclesiastes 7, he says, better to go into the house of mourning than go into the house of feasting, but that's the end of all men. How many times have you ever talked to someone? I, I know I have about about eternal things, and, and when it gets uncomfortable, they crack a joke. They can't, they can't stand to think about the reality of eternity, so they just joke about ah, it's funny, right? Oh, it's so funny. I'm just you know, and they crack a joke about it, and it's like, no, friend, you must take this seriously. This is not a joke. He says, let your laughter be turned to mourning, your joy to gloom. You must develop a proper view of yourself and your circumstances. If you don't have that, you're not Going to direct your desires in the right place. And lastly, he says we must embrace humility before God. He says, humble yourselves in the sight of God. And he will lift you up. We look back at verse 6. He says, God gives grace to the humble, so humble yourself. This is not a false humility where you're looking down on yourself and you're saying, Oh, woe is me. This is, you know, humility, as people, many people have said, is not thinking less of yourself, it's thinking of yourself less. I agree with that, but the point of this passage. Is specifically that humility is agreeing with God about what is important in your life and what needs to be part of your life. Some of us need to take a hard look in the mirror and be humble before God and submit our hearts to Him. You know, desires are powerful things. In the wrong place if they're misdirected, they have the power to do great harm. And because selfish desires create conflicts and those desires drive our loyalties, this is important, those who would follow Christ must submit not only their actions, but also their desires to the obedience of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not enough that you follow God outwardly, you must follow Him inwardly. Your desires matter. You cannot pursue your own desires and pursue Christ at the same time, it's impossible. These desires are contrary to each other. They will only create double-mindedness. Your desires must be directed towards following Jesus as a disciple. You must do this by submitting your heart to Christ as the proper king, committing yourself to lifelong pursuit of spiritual growth, developing a proper view of yourself and your circumstances, embracing humility before God. Our world teaches you you can't change what you want. (laughs) It's just who you are. It's embedded in your biology, they even might say. But the Scripture teaches us that through the grace of God, your desires can align with His desires, and they should. As we do that, we can fulfill the goal given to us in chapter 3 and verse 18, that the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So would you make peace with God today? There are three places you need to make peace. Number one, you need to make peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ by coming to Him in salvation. If you don't know the Lord Jesus as your personal Savior, you do not have peace with God. If you are trying to work your way to heaven and think that, well, one day I might go to heaven, and I might be let in because of all my good works, and I hope that I get... If, you, if you're thinking that line, you do not have peace with God. You need to come the only way through Jesus. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one can come to the Father except through Him. He is the only way you have peace. Romans chapter 5 and verse 1 tells us, peace with God through Christ only, not through this church, not through your pastor, not through a priest, through Jesus. That's right. Peace with God, number one. Number two is peace with others, through righteousness and showing God's forgiveness and grace. There might be people in your life who you, when you hear their name, your whole body tenses up because you have some unresolved conflicts with that person, and you need to go home and pray and ask God to give you the grace to ask forgiveness of people. Conflicts are not, are not good. They come from, uh, from within. And you may have been excusing this, saying that was their fault. That's an that's, that's external issue. God calls us to make peace with one another, chapter 3 at the end there. And lastly, internal peace. That comes from, comes from resting in the one who knows everything and is your king. Would you rest in the Lord Jesus as your king? What do you want? Well, I hope you want to follow Christ, and I hope you want to give yourself to him. And a lot of Christians need to be disciples, need to commit themselves to being a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ and submitting your whole heart to Him. Would you bow with me in prayer as we close? Father, as we've talked about desires today, there are many things that are overwhelming to us, and I pray that as we have this moment of quiet here, you would please work in our hearts, that we would commit ourselves to you. If there's someone here who needs to trust you as their Savior, For the first time, they need to place their confidence in you alone, rejecting anything else they're leaning on and lean wholly upon you and trust you for their salvation. I pray that today would be that day, that they would believe in your death, burial, and resurrection, their own sin, and they'd come before you. Lord, if there's someone here who is struggling with conflicts in their life, there are many conflicts that they have scattered around their relationships. May they confess their part in these conflicts and holding completely submit to You. And Lord, for the worldly among us, those who are struggling with a double allegiance, a double-mindedness, um, an adultery of spiritual, spiritual adultery, Lord, I pray that You would convict the heart, and You would help them to see they need to come back to You, the One who bought them with a price. Lord, I pray as we deal with you in these next few moments that we would have the peace of God overwhelm us and direct us towards following you. I'm going to leave you, have your heads bowed, eyes closed, and ask the pianist to play for a moment. And as she plays, we'll have a moment of quiet, deal with the Lord, pray to Him, and confess these things and walk with Him as you should. we come to you today and we thank you for your gracious gift of salvation we thank you for the peace we can have through christ and we ask god that our lives would be peaceful lives lives noted by peace because our conflicts have been resolved and our desires are to please you and you alone i pray god that we would commit ourselves not only to our actions following you but our desires being aligned with your desires because you are a good god and your desires for us are good I pray your blessings on the remainder of our day, Lord, as we worship you now. May our hearts be in tune with you in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? We're going to close with a song, number 405. Eric's going to come and lead us. If you need to come down front and talk or anything like that and pray, I'll be down front. We'll sing together 405.